0: Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. You know, there's always so much energy news. I often have a difficult time choosing what on earth am I going to write on. But a few weeks ago, we had some big news that came out, and that is that the Supreme Court surprised everyone by issuing a stay on the Clean Power Plan, which is the centerpiece of President Obama's climate change legacy. But just a few days after that, we had again a surprise with the Supreme Court when Justice Antonia suddenly passed away, throwing kind of the, the decisions that the Supreme Court was going to be facing into turmoil. And one of those is the Clean Power Plan. So I decided to wait a couple weeks and kind of let the dust settle a little and then look at what are the states doing specifically now that the Clean Power Plan has a stay on it. So I'm delighted to have with us again uh, Jeff Homestead, who is a partner with Bracewell and a former official in both the George H.W. Bush and the George W. Bush administrations. With George the Elder, he was in the White House, and with George the Younger in the EPA. And so he has a lot of experience with regulations, and uh, particularly we've talked before on this Clean Power Plan because it's been something that has been percolating through the system for the last couple of years. So, Jeff, I appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule today to join us and give us some insights on the Clean Power Plan once again.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So can you for our listeners that might not be as familiar with this issue as you and I are uh, can you give to folks a, a kind of a quick overview of what the clean power plan is and what it has the potential uh, potential damage?
1: Well, the clean power plan is is by far the most uh, far re- far, re- far reaching regulation that EPA has ever issued and, and some people would say it's the most audacious um, Other EPA regulations have always been about getting individual plants to install pollution controls, Uh, but this regulation is very different. It's explicitly designed to shut down uh, about 30 percent of of the existing coal-fired generation and to require that new wind and solar plants be built to replace the, the, the electricity that formerly was generated by coal. So, as I say, this is quite different. It's, it's an attempt by EPA to use the Clean Air Act to just fundamentally restructure the way electricity is produced and used, because... EPA's regulation is also explicitly designed uh, to to force people to use less electricity. Um, They they talk about it in terms of energy efficiency, but this isn't kind of voluntary energy efficiency that you or I might do because it makes economic sense. It is um, mandated efficiency and the mandated construction of new wind and solar plants all over the country
0: yeah and that's that's where the 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 rub comes in on this plan because you know, for the consumer it's going to mean dramatically higher prices and it's going to be very tough economically on the states
1: you know it it, it, it especially on states that currently have uh, uh, the some of the most reasonable energy prices because they've been uh, using coal so you know if you look at 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 the states on both of the coasts, and especially in California, in the north we, in the Northeast, they already have pretty high electricity prices compared to the other parts of the country. But what what this will do is really force the rest of the country to have prices that are you know more like you have in in California.
0: Yeah. So what you know that that gives us a good background on it. Were you surprised when the Supreme Court issued this stay?
1: You, you know I. I, I was not entirely surprised. Um, many people have said, and it's absolutely true, that this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever stepped in and 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 suspended and stayed a federal regulation. But but it's not an exaggeration to say what EPA did here what was was just astounding. Um, and the the regulatory authority that they claimed clearly goes beyond what. Congress intended under the Clean Air Act. So, if there ever was a case where regulation cried out to be to be stayed by the Supreme Court, this was it. So, on the one hand, yes, it was a surprise because the Supreme Court has never done it before. On the other hand, it, there was a pretty compelling case that that this regulation was illegal, and that if we waited a, a two or three years for the case to get to the Supreme Court. An awful lot of damage would have been done before the court could could, could actually rule on, on the regulation. So I think there was a very strong case for the Supreme Court to step in.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I was surprised and not surprised. I had pre- kind of predicted it. Uh, You obviously have far more expertise on this topic than I do, but I do watch it more than the average person. And I felt, I I think, I want to tell you if you agree with me or not, I want to see, but I feel like when they issued the MATS rule, the Mercury Air Toxic Standards Rule, and the, the Supreme Court came out and said this rule was an overreach and you've got it, they threw it back to the lower court, they... EPA's attitude, in my opinion, I think irritated the Supreme Court because the EPA basically, in print, in their press releases in response to the Supreme Court's decision, thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court, and I don't think the Supreme Court takes kindly to that. The EPA basically went, nah, 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 nah. it doesn't make any difference because the, what, the rule took so long to get to the Supreme Court – that all the damaging impacts had already been felt, and I think the Supreme Court—not um, that I could get inside their mind, of course—but I think that they really took that into consideration on this stay.
1: Well, no, I agree with that completely. And and as you may know, we were involved in in drafting the stay applications to the Supreme Court, and and we pointed that out pretty clearly in our in our stay motions uh, that that EPA really had. Um, Uh, kind of thumbed its nose at the Supreme Court. You know, normally when an agency loses a big case in the Supreme Court, you would expect them to show a a bit of humility, but...
0: but Yeah, put their tail between their legs a little bit and dial back.
1: Yeah, I mean, but they were kind of defiant, and they said, well, you know, this doesn't really matter because all of the investments have been made. People have already had to comply. So, you know, whether or not the Supreme Court, uh, however the Supreme Court rules, we got what we wanted anyway. And, and there were quotes almost that stark from the administration. Exactly. And and we quoted those back to the Supreme Court, and, and that probably did have some impact on the way they thought about the case.
0: Now, a lot of people are talking about with the je- death of Justice Scalia that the Clean Power Plan may not be in jeopardy that some of us had hoped that the stay indicated. But I don't see that the Supreme Court is really going to be that influential on this because, you know, even if... President Obama was, was able to get through a more liberal justice, which I don't think is going to happen, but even if he is, this is not going to be before the Supreme Court until 2017 at the soonest. And, I mean, it's in the lower courts right now, but I think everybody agrees it's going to end up in the Supreme Court. And it won't get there until at the soonest 2017, which means we have a new president in office, and which means we have a new uh, EPA administrator, and um, there's precedent. Um, I'm going to have on the show a little later Travis Fisher, who was formerly with FERC, and he wrote a, a piece uh, when he was with FERC that's published that's titled The Bootleggers and Baptists of Utility And You and I aren't going to talk about that, but in his piece he says, The George W. Bush EPA initially challenged the ruling, but with a new administrator appointed by President Obama, the agency dropped its challenge and accepted the court ruling. Now, it's not clear just in reading that one quote what ruling we're talking about, what the challenges are, which I know you know all of that, having been in the George W. Bush EPA but my point is this gives us some precedent for saying that there are regulations that when a new administration comes in gets overturned. What do you think about that, If assuming we get a Republican president?
1: Oh, oh I think it's very clear that if we have a Republican president elected in November that
0: – And it really doesn't matter which one.
1: Right, any of the, any of the Republican candidates. For, for this point. Right, right. Well, e- even even if you look at those that dropped out, every single one of them said that the Clean Power Plan was an overreach and, and that they would repeal it, and that would be a relatively simple thing to do. So, uh, I, I, Now, I, explain I, I, that, because I've I, heard I, people
0: I, argue the other side.
1: Well, I, I will say this. There are certainly many EPA regulations that a new administration can't undo, either for legal reasons or practical reasons, and that is true. But this particular regulation is structured in a way that it would actually be quite simple for a new administration to come along and and repeal. Now, to be fair, they would have to go through the rulemaking process. They would have to put out a, a proposal and take public comment on it and then issue a final uh, – and take final action that would repeal or revoke the Clean Power Plan. But, but that certainly could be done here because – um, the clean power plan is not it's not required by statute. Um, there's no there's no deadline that says EPA has to do a regulation like this. And in fact, um, I I think what would happen is a, a new administration would, would come on with with any Republican that we can imagine, and they would do two things. First, they would revoke um, a, a related regulation that deals with new power plants, and and once that's revoked, then there's no, there's no authority for the Clean Power Plan any longer. And they would probably take a bit longer to, 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 to figure out the best way to roll back the Clean Power Plan. But, no, I, I, think, it's, I think it's quite clear that uh, the election matters a lot, not only because the next president will, will be the one who, who nominates the, the next justice on the Supreme Court, but because uh, the new president will also have a chance to really undo some of the regulatory overreach that we've seen over the last seven years.
0: Well, it's certainly going to be an interesting uh, road ahead of us. Uh, So if you were advising states, would you agree with Attorney General Patrick Morrissey of West Virginia, who said put down your pencils, do not continue with these Clean Power Plan regulations or with preparing for them?
1: Yeah, no, no, and I think I will tell you one of the things that has really bothered me in the last few weeks is um, EPA has been telling states, uh, and they've been doing this kind of quietly, they haven't done a public announcement, but they've said, you better keep on working on those plans because uh, if the Supreme Court rules in our favor, you're going to have to meet all those deadlines. And so, uh, you know, the the deadlines that you were working on, those aren't going to change. This state doesn't affect those. That is just absolutely untrue as a legal matter. What the Supreme Court did means that all of the deadlines in the Clean Power Plan have now been suspended. And even in the worst case, even if the Supreme Court uh, were to come along and, and and if we have another Democratic uh, president and he or she gets to appoint a new Supreme Court justice and they uphold the, the Clean Power Plan in 2018, then all of the dates would would be pushed back by the amount of time between the time the rule was published and the Supreme Court acts. And that all may sound very legalistic, but what it means is in the worst case for a state, um, all those deadlines will be pushed back somewhere between two and two and a half years. So the now, now
0: you threw out we're almost at, we're almost out of time, but you threw out a number 2018. So you think there might not be a decision out of the Supreme Court until 2018?
1: Yeah, I I think it probably, as we kind of go through all the schedules, we're looking probably May or June of 2018 before we get a final decision from the Supreme Court. Wow. All
0: right, we're out of time, but I appreciate your insights, Jeff Homestead. You've been very, very helpful in helping us understand this. It's going to be an interesting thing for those of us who watch energy policy to see what happens with this clean power plan. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thanks.
3: Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm pleased to have back with us once again the president of the Kentucky Coal Association, Bill Bissett. And I'm interested to hear, Bill, from your perspective, uh, what does this clean power plan uh, mean, the stay from the Supreme Court? What does this mean for the coal industry? Well,
4: marita it's a much-needed win uh not only for the coal industry for our coal miners but also for anybody who believes in affordable reliable electricity it was uh it was an unexpected win and i mean no offense to attorney general morrissey or anybody else who's worked legally on this issue but you know the lawyers i talked to thought it was a bit of a reach that they didn't they didn't expect to stay now they do believe that the constitutionality of the Clean Power Plan will not pass muster, that we have a tremendous chance to win in court once we get to court uh, on that issue. But as far as this day, that was a bit of a reach, but we got it. And uh, it was amazing how quick the EPA and the anti-coal activists were so quick to just say, oh, that's not a big deal, and that's just a, a procedural issue, and it doesn't really have any effect. Well, that's nonsense, because the lawyers I talked to were very clear that you know the, the the court saw the merits of our argument in a majority ruling, and I think that's very important. I think the other lesson that we learned from this stay is this fell very much on party lines. Uh, you know the the Democratic justices voted you know to not issue this stay, and the Republicans voted to issue this stay. And uh, when you come from a state like Kentucky, where you have pro coal Republicans and Democrats. You know, that's a concern, because when you're breaking down on party lines, you pretty much know where everyone's going to be on this issue. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. It, on a national level, especially with the presidential race going on in the back, uh, background, that's a major concern to us as to who's the next occupant of the White House.
0: Yes, it most certainly is. And obviously that was the emphasis uh, of my column this week, that, you know, that's that's who's going to determine this, because we know – um, that the Supreme Court will not hear this until after we have a new resident in the White House. Uh, because by the time the district court, the D.C. Circuit Court, hears it uh, with opening arguments on June 2nd, which is expedited in itself, and then, you know, they produce a decision. Most of the experts I I was in contact with think that we'll have a decision in uh, In the fall of this year, but before the election, that means that by the time the Supreme Court hears arguments on this, there's no way it's any sooner than 2017.
4: Correct, and... You know, two thoughts on that. Uh, you know, like we talked, you and I have talked about, the stakes are tremendous in this presidential race, which, you know, which gives us a lot of concern as there seems to be so much turmoil with it, too, at the same time, even in a post-Super Tuesday world. But, you know, the, the issue of coal, you know, our, our livelihood is literally going to be dependent on who, who comes out the other side of this ballot box. But I, I think also... Yeah, let, let the, the, me jump,
0: in and, ask, sure, let me jump sure. in and ask you there. Have you done, because this is what I plan to do for my column mm-hmm. that will publish next... Next week I've been waiting till after Super Tuesday to see who is still surviving and you know as I do a lot of radio interviews myself as a guest sure. the hosts often ask me you know what are their energy policies who do you like you know on energy and all I've been able to cite is in Donald Trump's new book he has a section on energy that in all seriousness you would think that I wrote and uh, it it's it's totally in line now he pandered to the ethanol lobby in iowa and so i've only cited what trump wrote in his newest book and then what ted cruz did um in standing up to the ethanol lobby in iowa but i have been planning uh following super tuesday to see who is still standing if all five of them stay in which i'll give it another 24 hours and then i'm going to um My column for next week is going to be an energy policy analysis of each of the candidates, at least the best I can figure out. And that's what I'm going to write on this week. Have you followed that at all? Have you followed? Obviously, you're going to be looking at coal while I look at coal, oil, gas, gas. And nuclear? Have you followed the positions of our current Republican candidates?
4: Absolutely, as well as the Democratic candidates, who I'm sure you're well. Well,
0: the Democrats well. are easy.
4: There. Yeah, they they, <laughs> they fall in the uh, in the no column pretty quickly, given their comments of not only supporting the president's anti-coal initiatives, but actually expanding upon them, which is terrifying. But uh, yes. I, you know, at this point, I will tell you that a lot of the folks I work for, and I should mention the Kentucky Coal Association doesn't endorse candidates, but Obviously, Nor do our, I. Our, our members <laughs> our members uh, are very active in politics many of them are and there does seem to be a push towards Senator Rubio and I'm not sure if that's because of you know his comments specifically on coal or maybe his overall pro-business agenda or what that is but I am seeing some movement that direction I do see a few folks moving towards Trump I'm not sure if that's because of you know doing so well obviously yesterday and you know sort of catching fire if you will as a candidate but uh, you know the, the concern that I seem hear mostly from my membership, and you'll appreciate this, is they just want someone who can win. (laughs) They're almost not even concerned. It's going to be better than Senator Sanders or Secretary Clinton. So Let's figure out who can win and get behind them now. And, and that's kind of concerning to me because this fragmentation, I, I think your analysis is right on target and needs to be done, and believe me, I'll be looking at it closely too. But at the same time, do we wind up in this circular firing squad of candidates who are pro-coal and then come limping out and then have to tackle a, a Clinton or most likely a Clinton and much less degree a Sanders?
0: Yeah. Now, from your understanding, are there any of the Republican candidates that are anti-coal?
4: Um, The only one that caused me pause was Governor Christie of of New Jersey because of some earlier actions, originally being very supportive of the Clean Power Plan, and additionally, um, you know, kind of connecting, you know, the the, the flooding there. Yeah, and he's in Reggie. Yeah, yeah, which, which kind of made me scratch my head a little bit, but that being said he turned those issues back and became very anti-clean power plan as he headed down the campaign trail but now that he's out I, I think you have pretty much across the board people that will take this uh, you know this country in a very different direction regarding energy than this current president has. and let me add this the the thing i the thing that's given me hope here because you know is this person going to follow through once they get in office because as I, we've talked about the stakes are so high for the coal industry the reason why i think they will is because one person in many ways started this course you know the president did not have the support of congress he could not get cap and trade through even when he had you know the democrats in charge of both houses he he's had a worse track record on energy with congress as it's moved forward so one person can make these changes one person can reverse this course and that's the presidency so that that gives me hope that the next person can do that if we get someone who looks very different at the product that i represent
0: yeah, and, and you know, again, from my research, not one of them uh, is on board. Not one of the remaining Republican candidates is on board with President Obama's climate change agenda, which is what the foundation of this whole thing is. Not one of them supports this. I have been disappointed in uh, uh, John Kasich's support of uh, renewable mandates and, and so forth, and uh, that was disappointing to me because I had been considering voting for him. Mm-hmm. And, and
4: I wonder if some of that's more Kasich's moderate positioning and then you've got to look at Ohio as a very you know, bifurcated state as it comes to politically You know, Cleveland is much different than, than South Point which is near where I'm from in West Virginia you know, you've got a real diverse political spectrum and perhaps he was trying to be all things for all people as governors often do but yeah I, I agree that but then, then you think who can be that populist that can win in purple states and if somebody could give me Ohio out of the gate I'd feel pretty good about it if you know what I mean
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally do. I'm with I mean, you there. Real, but, you know, Ohio, Ohio's a, a great natural matters. resource state. Ohio's well, it, got oil, they've got coal, they've got natural gas.
4: Oh, they've got manufacturing, they've got flat land, they've got lots of airports. I mean, they, they've they've got a tremendous advantage, and I think they've... You know, much like Kentucky, in a lot of ways, we've taken advantage of that low-cost electricity to create manufacturing because we have flat land. Uh, you look at Eastern Kentucky or my home state of West Virginia; it's a much greater challenge. But you know, that that's something that I think it is important, and that's why I think you know Ohio has become this bellwether state. You know, sort of like Pennsylvania, Virginia, Florida, and others. But if you're coming to the table and you can't give me a state that's going to win the election. I'm not sure how we can throw in behind you. Does that make any sense? I mean, we kind of know where Texas is going. We know where, where Kentucky is going. But, you know, I need those battleground states to vote a certain way, and the person who can carry those states with them I think is a big factor. You know, Bernie yeah. Sanders bringing Vermont to the uh, to the anti-coal activists is not exactly, you know, a, a huge win. You know, Vermont was already not going to support anyone who, who – Yeah, that hasn't,
0: yeah, that hasn't made you
4: fear. No, no, there's not, not a big friends of coal chapter up in Vermont, so you know we really don't uh, you know we, we, we don't look at it that way, and that's and that's not going to change anytime soon, which to me puts them further on the sidelines.
0: Yeah, you know we've been talking politics here, and I didn't really necessarily intend for us to go there, but you know I do love I do love politics. You and me, and uh, you know it, it is a, it it is an interesting topic, but I want comment you made. i to steer a little bit direction because you brought up they have in Ohio they have. Flatland, and I like how you said that. I was on a radio show in Lubbock, Texas, uh, morning show uh, in studio where they have a conservative and a liberal co co morning hosts or whatever. And I don't know how they stand each other, but <laughs> the 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 really the the liberal one was going on about how terrible mountaintop mining was, and I went whoa 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 stop! Have you been there? And he, of course, said no. I said, well, listen, I have been there. Thanks to you, Bill, this, and I have been there. <laughs> exactly. And I was able to say, you know what, there would not be a hospital, a school, or a Walmart if it wasn't for mountaintop removal in that part of the country. And your comment about th- that they have flat land so they can map manufacturing and how much harder that is in these other parts of the region um, brought that that experience back to mind. Can you comment on that? We've got about another minute and a half left.
4: I'd be happy to. I'm actually meeting with a graduate student from University of Kentucky later today for a coffee who wants to talk to me about mountaintop removal. And I know I can already tell from her emails which direction she's going to come at this issue, but several factors come to mind. And that's the thing. When you haven't done economic development in an area with difficult topography, like eastern Kentucky, like West Virginia, I can, you know, the name mountaintop removal, I can see we're people have an emotional reaction to it but like you've done when you talk to the people who live there they are overwhelmingly for it if you land on an airport in that neck of the woods you're landing on a former mining site but the problem is once we do once we make it an airport you don't know it was a mine it's become something else now and we're we're somewhat a victim of our own success with that but the biggest thing to remember is and i hate to say this sentence to you marita the activists have kind of won on that issue. I'd say less than 2%, maybe even 1% of our coal, total coal production in Kentucky is through mountaintop mining means. We haven't asked for a permit since 2007. You know, it's really, it's so heavily litigated and so criticized by people who don't live in the coal fields that they've kind of won that one, which is very, very frustrating. But it is interesting when you talk to the well, people you know, who and unfortunately there, it's a very different perspective.
0: Unfortunately, under the current administration, uh, any coal mining is, you know, there's not a big demand for new coal mines. You know, with Sally Jules, Secretary Jules' announcement of a moratorium on mining on federal lands, um, it kind of is like not a big deal because there's not a lot of demand for new coal mines, and we've got about uh, 45 seconds left, Bill. Well,
4: until we can build new coal-fired power plants, which under this administration – Given the standards the president has enacted, there's no technology that you can build a coal-fired power plant and run it in the limits that they're suggesting. So they know it's a ban. It's been very effective. And it's very simple economics. If we can't build new coal-fired power plants, then our market only contracts. It only shrinks. It never grows. As coal plants get older and come offline, and there's more pressure on them to come offline from activists and others, that's where we really we start to get very concerned. If you look at the last quarter, 2015, Every coal field in this nation had a reduction, every one, and our production is starting to meet that declining market. That's where we really need to get worried because it's not just Appalachia now that's suffering. It's every coal miner across the country.
0: Yeah. Uh, give me five seconds. What do you think is going to happen with the clean power plant?
4: Uh, I think we're going to win in court. The big question is can we win soon enough?
0: Yeah. Well, Bill Bissett, President of Kentucky Coal Association, appreciate your insights today. Fun talking politics with you, and we'll see where it all goes. So, okay, stay, sure tuned. Yeah, stay with us. We'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy.
3: Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution.
5: com. You're listening to
1: America'sWebRadio.com The pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Frequently I have guests on from the Institute for Energy Research. One of my favorites is Dan Simmons. He comes to my aid when I'm desperate, like, help, I need a guest, and I get Dan Dan Simmons. Well, today I'm delighted to meet a new member of the team at the Institute for Energy Research, Travis Fisher, who is an economist formerly with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And, uh, Travis, welcome to America's Voice for Energy.
6: Thank you. It's great to be on.
0: You look too young in the picture that I have in front of me to uh, have the experience and expertise that you have. How long have you been uh, working in the electricity sector? Well,
6: I went to FERC right out of college and was there for about seven years, and I've been with IER for about two and a half, so I'm coming up on ten years of experience. So I I appreciate your, your nice comments there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I'm a, I've been in this industry about 10 years as well, although I started at a much older age than you. So, we'll we'll just leave the age thing alone and move on. You know, interesting. Um, I I sort of have became acquainted with you via email in the last 24 hours because I was kind of desperate for guests for my show. I really wanted somebody representing uh, the utility side of this clean power plan subject because I I believe this is a story, the clean power plan and the Supreme Court stay, is a story that that got lost in a lot of other big news. And people are not really aware of it, and they're not aware of the impact. And I'm one who fights for, you know, affordable electricity rates, and I just hate that the government, by regulation and mandate, is driving up electricity prices for the consumers. And so I'm constantly uh, beating this drum. But yet I've had a really hard time getting any of the utility folks uh, to come on board with me, to come on the air with me. And uh, when you and I first corresponded via email, you sent me to a piece that you had written in the past when you were with FERC, that is i just think it's brilliant so i want to draw everybody's attention to it and you can just find it i think the easiest is just do a search the title is the bootleggers and baptists of utility mac now of course travis you're gonna have to explain to our listeners what utility mac is um, and then we'll draw the comparison to this to the clean power plan but there's one comment in the very beginning well, not very but in the first page of your multi-page piece here that I want to draw attention to because what you say in here is basically what I said in my column, but in all my research, and I'm sure you could tell, Travis, I do a lot of research on every piece I write, um, I didn't find anybody else addressing this. And this one line of yours is down in the second section but still on the first page. You say, the George W. Bush EPA initially challenged the ruling. But with a new administrator appointed by President Obama in 2009, the agency dropped its challenge and accepted the court ruling. And what you're pointing out there that I brought up in my column is that under a new president, we will have a totally different tone, assuming the president's a Republican, which I think it's looking more and more like every day. But assuming that, we're going to have a totally different tone coming out of the EPA and no analysis I I read brought that up so I'm sorry Travis with that really long you know introduction where do you want to go
6: oh man there's a lot there so yeah the, the <laughs> first point the probably the the most important point is that the EPA is not an independent agency in the same way that some other agencies like I would say FERC is is way more independent just based on its structure it's not necessarily a wing of the administration. It's not an extension of the executive branch necessarily, but EPA certainly is. So the way the EPA operates...
0: I don't know that that was how it was originally intended, But it, because it doesn't have a secretary cabinet leader, but the administrator of the EPA really has as much... It's In recent years, it has become as if it is a cabinet position.
6: Exactly, and, and in practice, it pretty much does the will of the executive. So one one way to view the Clean Power Plan, as it's called, the uh, CO2 rule, is this is the administrative version, this is the new iteration of cap and trade. So it's yeah. something that would never pass Congress, didn't pass Congress when Congress was way more favorable to that point of view, definitely not going to pass now. So you, you see that across the board where if there's a policy that doesn't work, that is not going to get support from people and not going to get support from Congress. Um, this administration is finding ways to use executive power, including through agencies like EPA, to accomplish the same goal. So that that's that's what the EPA rule is. It's sort of a it, – it's the administrative version of, of cap-and-trade, and, trade and it's, it accomplishes a lot of the same goals.
0: So you agree that assuming we have a Republican president, we will see a very different EPA?
6: Uh, I would hope so, and I, I, I would think it would be very different. There's also, I mean, there's some big hurdles there, like the endangerment finding would have to be reversed for any substantive change. So that that was the that was when the Supreme Court said, well, it's up to you, EPA, to to figure out if CO2 emissions endanger public health, and they did make that finding. So uh, it would take something like a reversal of the endangerment finding. So there's precedent there that's sort of blocking. Uh, sort of the the free reign of any new president there's 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 some uh, constraints on on their actions but it, it, it would certainly be different and I think it would be a lot better but I, I don't I don't know if it would be night and day necessarily
0: well it's going to be interesting to watch I think it'll definitely have have an impact on how the case is argued before the Supreme Court.
6: Mm-hmm. and in terms so, of the in terms of the utility max, I, I I do want to define that, and this is this is another yeah, tricky thing please. where the term itself has kind of morphed. At the time that I wrote the piece, utility max was kind of the go-to term, uh, and that just means utility has to use the maximum achievable control technology. And in this case, what they were targeting was mercury emissions from coal and oil units. Uh, so, utility MAC was sort of the go-to term. Uh, it, sh- it shifted over time to uh, to mats. So, be, okay.
0: Oh, See, oh, I wasn't oh, sure. I wasn't scared sure scared if of I wasn't sure if utility MAC and mats were the same. So, thank you for clarifying that.
6: Yeah. So that, that would be the mercury and air toxic standards. So you hear mercury rule, you hear utility MAC, you hear mats, and those are interchangeable terms that have sort of gone back and forth. So we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about a rule that mostly applied to coal burning uh, generation units and it was allegedly supposed to target mercury emissions from those units. So the what the way they would deal with that was sort of the command and control type of regulation where if if you own one of those units, your choice is really to either shut down or install a kind of you know, they they talk about it like Filters. It's not the same kind of. It's not. Um, it's not a tailpipe on a car. It's more like a garage on a car. It's 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 a big deal. It's it's not. It's not a small investment to. To, to put in this kind of uh, this huge technology that, that we're talking about. So mm-hmm. what, what what we were talking about at that point was. Uh, Utility Max was on the one hand it was this environmentalist thing so it sort of it, it came from you could argue a good place a sort of environmentalist place where you just want to clean up the environment and that was sort of the the baptist side of things so you have the
0: uh well wait wait actors. before you go into baptist we need to have you quickly explain the bootleg baptist and bootleg but we're already we've already used up we're down about 5 minutes left so we'll have to have to uh, be quick
6: uh-huh. all right quick version is um, Bruce Yandel coined this term, and he borrowed it from a dynamic that he saw or maybe made up. I'm not sure. It was from 1983, so you have to look farther back. But the idea was bootleggers and Baptists like the same policy. Uh, in the South, they like the idea that you would ban alcohol sales. And the sort of the backwards thinking there is that they're, they're strange bedfellows, but it sort of makes sense in the way that there's no market for a bootlegger if all of your sales are legal because the only market for a bootlegger is illegal sales. And if you're a moral actor in this space, if you're a preacher, if you're a Baptist, you, you would support those same policies just because on moral grounds, you find alcohol, uh, reprehensibly. You don't, you don't like the idea of open sales of it. Right. So, so in both cases, you point to the same policy. Say, "Yeah, we should ban alcohol sales," and it's it's very similar. That there's actually a lot of you, know, you can you can apply that theory to a bunch of different regulations that that have sort of a similar shape. So, in the environmental space, there are actually a lot. Uh, so, I argued that that was the case with Utility Mac. So, if you're if you're a generation owning utility. Uh, and you're forced, you know, I'm, I'm using the air quotes right now, if you're forced, because it actually ends up being a very good investment for you, if you're forced to install these very expensive scrubbers, um, it's not like you're just going to eat those costs. In many cases, you, that actually counts as an investment in your what's called a rate base. So you actually end up making a return. You, you recoup all the expenses, and you actually get – something like a 10% return on top of it. So any new expense yeah. that you can justify actually gives you a pretty good margin. And it, it's on, – on the one hand, that sounds kind of crazy <laughs> that you would just go around and say, oh, yeah, you can force me to make any investment I want and um, I'm going to come out great. It sounds like a racket, but it kind of is. Um, and it's
0: – Yeah, it is something. kind of a racket because the utility companies – are forced by government regulation to make these investments, therefore they can pass the cost on to the consumers, which gets us to the to the real problem is that the consumers are, end up paying higher utility or electricity costs.
6: Exactly. So f- from the point of view of the consumer, this is a bad investment. You wouldn't call it an investment. You would call it a, a mistake probably, but especially in the case of, you know, it, it's worth pointing out that with, mercury and with co2 we're not talking about things that are directly related to public health i mean the amount of mercury we're talking about saving the epa couldn't justify the cost benefit of that on its own they had to lean on something else they had to talk about pm 2.5 and they they had to say it was soot that was the main benefit of the of the regulation And, and and that's the same thing that they did with co2 as well so it's it's not like they can justify these on their own it's it really is. It's it's a racket on on both fronts. From the environmental benefits point of view, because they're not really there, and from the point of view of what what is this investment and who actually wins here, and it's utility winning, and what they're doing is recouping these new costs through higher rates that they charge all their customers.
0: So that's why I'm having trouble getting anyone from the utility uh, side to come on the show and talk to you about it because they don't really mind because they whatever new cost the clean power plan places on them they will pass on to consumers and we're down to 30 seconds travis
6: exactly and i think that it's important to press them on that and it's important for for people to see this for what it is i mean f- from that point of view it's a very uncomfortable topic for them so it's not it's not surprising for me that that you uh that you couldn't find anybody to come on and 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 talk about this very uncomfortable thing that they're doing.
0: Yeah. Well, you've done a great job explaining it. I'd really encourage you to update this piece for the Clean Power Plan. But we've been talking with Travis Fisher, who's an economist, formerly with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, now with the Institute for Energy Research. And I encourage you to search uh, for his piece, The Bootleggers and Baptists of Utility Mac. Fascinating piece, Travis. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy.
3: for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you.
5: When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear, in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
1: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. In our last segment, we were talking with Travis Fisher, an economist formerly with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and now with the Institute for Energy Research. And he had so much to say. There was so much content in what he was sharing with us. I I, I hated to have to cut the conversation short. So during the break, I asked Travis if he could hang with us and do another segment. And gratefully, um, he's available. So, Travis, welcome back on America's Voice for Energy.
6: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, you know, we, were, we were talking, and, and I, I feel like we didn't have time to fully develop all the ideas that we were talking about, so I appreciate you uh, staying with me for another segment. And I wanted to focus particularly on the unholy alliance, as you call it in your piece, Bootleggers and Baptists of Utility, Mac, um, and you call this an unholy alliance, that has emerged between environmentalists and some utilities in the context of the Environmental Protection Agency's ruling. And we saw that in a piece this weekend, this past weekend, in the Wall Street Journal, that talks specifically about uh, this same area. The, The piece is titled, How Utilities Team Up with Greens Against Consumers and uh, the subtitle of the piece show said that in Oregon, they're realizing that uh, the utilities don't mind all this green energy because it's more expensive. Their profits are higher, and to me, this just frosts me that they they should be doing the right thing overall and not strictly looking at profits. But but you found this to be very true in many cases in your research, correct?
6: Exactly, and it's it's, it's upsetting when, when you think about it in terms of you would you would expect the regulator and the regulated entity to have some tension between each other, and, and you would expect that uh, a company wouldn't want to be regulated. But in this case, in a lot of cases, utilities are in an environment where costs are actually good for them. If you can recover your costs, then any new costs, especially ones that are easy to recover, which... All these environmental costs fall into that category. If you're a utility, you embrace new costs because what you get is a return on top of the cost. So in a weird way, higher costs actually leads to higher profits because of the 10% return on all new costs that are recoverable. Uh, that's sort of the, the short version of it. So it it, it is it's backwards. Uh, it, it's almost like the utility is saying, don't throw me in that briar patch, and they'll actually make some public statements pushing back gently against re- regulations in general. But in in reality, they're actually – it's good for the utilities' bottom line to incur new costs.
0: Yeah, and we saw that in the, in the cap-and-trade battle back in 2009. The utilities really weren't fighting it and for that very reason because it would increase costs. But they were like, well, you know, it's no big deal because when government mandates certain costs on a business – they're then able to go back to the regulators and say, "Hey, they made us do this. They made us spend this money, and so we now need rate increases as a result of it." And by the time the rate increases hit, uh, the regulation is deeply embedded in in policy.
6: Exactly, and that, that's the, that's what we saw with utility mac with the you know. We- We called it a few different things, the Mercury Rule. But that was actually one key thing to notice there is that all of the costs were already incurred. All the utilities made either the choice to shut down a coal-fired power plant, which is costly in itself because those are some of the lowest-cost units that we have on the grid, either to shut down the plant or to install the scrubber. Both of those are costly choices, but they're not the kind of thing that you can reverse after this act. So... Interestingly enough, the Supreme Court didn't like the way EPA handled that rule, and it was too late by then, though, to get any sort of recourse from the from the judicial side. So that it was actually, you know, it was all water under the bridge, all those investments, you know, I'm using air quotes again, investments had already been made, or the choice, or, or the choice to, to close down the plant. That choice had already been made, so it almost didn't matter what the Supreme Court said. So that actually kind of dovetails into why the Supreme Court stay was so important with uh, the Clean Power Plan, because it actually it was a way of cutting it off before all those bad investments were made in the first place.
0: Yeah, it set new precedent. I had was talking with Jeff Holmstead in our first segment of the show, and I asked him I, if, if he agreed with me, because I feel like... The EPA basically thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court, and I think the Supreme Court—not uh, that I could get in their head—but I think the Supreme Court doesn't take kindly to that. You know, they are the highest court in the land, and and that's a a, a position they they protect and respect. But the EPA, when the, they came out with a with the Matz rule decision, they basically said na 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 na. Nah. You know. The, what we wanted and i think that that attitude in and of itself played a factor in the supreme court's decision to issue this unprecedented stay would you agree
6: i i would agree and i think justice thomas went one step further uh, when he tacked on to the the mets ruling and he said we might want to revisit this whole idea of chevron deference which is basically that if an agency comes to a conclusion it's not really the court's job to second guess especially in technical matters like epa rules and things like that he actually went i I thought i thought i actually agree with him but i i I think that was another unprecedented step to say
0: I'm, i'm not familiar with that can you explain that that's something i'm not familiar with uh
6: there was a case i think it was a 1984 case between chevron and the nrdc and uh the the gist of it, and it, this is actually the standard that a lot of FERC cases are are decided on as well, so that, that was why I was familiar with it to begin with, but uh-huh. the case has Chevron in the name, so it's called Chevron deference the court defers to the agency. It's sort of um, the agency knows best, so unless the court finds something very r- wrong with it and the, the term they use is arbitrary and capricious, unless there's mm-hmm. something terribly wrong with what the agency has done, the court says, well, we're just going to defer to what the agency has done. And that, I think, is sort of the, the environment in which EPA has been operating, saying, well, courts are going to defer to us. And I think that's also the the environment where where FERC has been operating. But long story short, the courts, yeah, they they historically, or at least over the past few decades, haven't really second-guessed much of what agencies have been doing. I think that's changing. I think agencies might have abused that to a point where courts are actually being – uh, more, more on top of the game and questioning what agencies are doing.
0: Yeah, well, there's certainly this particular rule, that the Clean Power Plan, the one that we're specifically talking about today on this show, and I've addressed many, many times over the last couple of years because it's taken a couple of years for this to percolate through, is is really uh, high cost consequences for the American consumer. And uh, how do you see? That where do you see these costs coming in?
6: Well, it's important to remember this is – EPA is supposed to regulate the source of the pollution. So if you call CO2 a pollutant, you're supposed to look at either – you know, for the most part, we're talking about coal plants, natural gas plants. What EPA did was let's look at the whole power grid as a system of emissions, and let's say you can increase, on the one hand, the amount of wind and solar power that you put on the grid – which is the debt sort of outside the fence line? That, that was sort of a new, uh, you know, EPA is getting very creative, and again, it's probably in this environment of they kind of they, they get away with a lot. So, from that point of view, what what they're talking about is more wind and solar on the grid, a lot less coal, and it depends who you ask, but either more or less natural gas-fired generation. And one piece that was initially part of the EPA rule that that sort of fell out was less electricity use overall, so that they, they talk about energy efficiency as being a, a thing. Yeah,
0: one of their four first. building blocks, as they call it.
6: Exactly, and that, I, I believe that fell out of the final rule. So that, that, was, that was a step too far, even even in their eyes. But what we're talking about is shutting down coal plants and increasing the amount of, especially, wind on the grid. And what that does is it shuts down your cheapest source of electricity and actually throws on not only a more expensive source, but an intermittent mm-hmm. source. And the key the key issue with that there is you don't actually do away with the need for a gas plant or a coal plant on the grid because you do need power that you can turn on at any point in the day. One of the main problems with wind turbines is you can't ask them to just generate power. You have to take right. their you have to take their power as the wind's available. So in, in that sense, the fuel is either free or infinitely priced because you can't buy it at any price. Uh, you just have to take it as it comes. So they actually, if, if there's a lot of wind turbines on the grid, they're, they're all intermittent, and what they do is they sort of have this, uh, I would call it a parasitic effect. Um, we, we talk about it at IAR as, as an imposed cost on the dispatchable units. So on the units that you can turn off and on, those actually run less frequently because they have to back down to accommodate the wind. Right. And as Mm -hmm. we see this more and more, the cost of those units, because you still need to maintain them, that you still need them on the grid for a reliable grid, the cost of those units goes up actually per unit of electricity. So if you talk about, you know, the, the main thing that people talk about is the levelized cost of electricity. More intermittent sources on the grid actually increases the levelized cost of electricity from the sources that you need, from the coal plants and gas plants. And that is a crucial effect that actually a lot of wind advocates have cheered. So that as they see this, they say, well, it, this just shows that wind is reaching parity with, you know, coal and yeah, gas. Yeah, but,
0: but it's that. reaching parity because they're increasing uh, the cost of the lower, the lower cost energy.
6: Exactly. So it's a uh, it's a Tanya Harding kind of a thing going on, where if you cripple your competition with bad policies, and so <laughs> it's, 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 it's also important to note that wind is really only on the grid to the extent that it is because of an aggressive PTC, so the wind, wind suppliers get a production tax credit that ends up, in some cases, being about equal to the price that they get for the electricity itself. So There's a huge subsidy, Uh on the other hand you get environmental rags that hurt coal and it's just it's kind of a crazy environment to say that that wind is winning or that it's reaching any kind of parity and it's also it's meaningless because it's apples and oranges if you're comparing a dispatchable unit to a non-dispatchable unit so if you if you want to compare wind to coal you have to take into account somehow you, you have to take into account the fact that one you can turn on and get electricity from as you need it, and the other one, you can't. So th- then you'd have to incorporate cost of storage and things like that, and there there isn't a very good way to store electricity still. So it, it really does come down to an apples-oranges kind of comparison.
0: Yeah. Well, we're out of time again. I appreciate you being able to join us for this additional segment and adding this uh, extra insight. Again, I want to encourage our listeners to look up your piece. And, again, even though it's on a rule that – that, uh, you know, it's a little bit an older story at this point, the concept. And uh, we've been talking with Travis Fisher, economist uh, with the Institute for Energy Research and formerly with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Great insights, Travis, and I'm sure you're going to be back with us on America's Voice for Energy sometime soon. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. Please join us again next week for another edition of America's Voice for Energy on americaswebradio.com.